0: leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Sue Brown, Executive Group Director, Sustainability at Worley. Worley is a leading global provider of professional project and asset services in the energy, chemicals, and resources sectors. They cover the full project lifecycle from guiding their customers with pioneering projects to finding innovative ways of sustaining and enhancing their existing assets. The company employs over 52,000 people, operates on all continents, and is administered by its head office in North Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. I was excited for this one because the longer that I've spent looking at climate change and the clean energy transition, the more clear it is that we need to build a lot of stuff. And Worley is on the front lines actually doing the work to engineer and build all the things that need to get built. And they're doing so across industries, and they're doing so globally. Now, Sue has been with the company for quite a while, and she runs a sustainability team. So it was fascinating to dig in on her journey, why she does the work she does, and of course, Worley, where it fits in, what they're seeing out there on the front lines, what mix. Of project work is coming from traditional industries versus cleaner sources. How that mix is shifting over time. How much of a strategic priority it is and why. What barriers are holding back the transition? What we can do to unlock faster progress and where these EPCs fit in in general. Why is it that the US, for example, can't build big stuff? Or at least that's what a lot of people say. And what do we need to do to get all the infrastructure built that we need to support the clean energy transition? I really enjoyed this one, and I hope you do as well. Sue,
1: welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, I am too. And I'm a little scared because in my travels, it's come up again and again that you know, early stage innovation starting from zero is important, and there's a role for it, and it matters, and we should invest in it. But that the biggest bang for the buck, especially when you start factoring in things like the time value of carbon is deploying the stuff that we've got at massive scale. And that kind of deployment realm, when you get into building big plants and infrastructure and transmission lines and things like that, like as a former mobile app entrepreneur, like that's pretty far outside of my comfy spot, but it's just such an important piece of the clean energy transition that. I and anyone who's serious about accelerating the transition needs to understand it. And you are just so well-situated working at Worley to help educate me and listeners on, on what's going on in that big,
1: wide world of deployment. Absolutely. And I think this is a bit of an unsung area of inquiry, actually, in the global conversation, if I'm honest, Jason. You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, targets and technology and what have you, but when you actually look at what needs to be delivered to deliver the low carbon technology that's required to decarbonize our energy system, it's actually mind boggling. And it's, it's a massive task. And yeah, we've done a lot of thinking on that in the last couple of years, actually, with Princeton University. Yeah,
0: well, I saw you wrote that. I mean, how many pages was that sustainability report that you, that you put out?
1: Well, our 2021 one—I don't know—like it was like 50 or 70 pages. This year, we've actually combined our sustainability report with our annual report, so really combining. Oh, okay, yeah, that's the one I saw. But that was like 100 something, 100 something yeah, pages. Yeah, yeah, probably I think. with all the financial stuff in there. But yeah, we're really looking at how we integrate, you know, this consideration of social and environmental value in the whole, you know, accounting of our business's performance. Actually, so that was a big step this year. That change. Yeah. Well, before we get too far down the path. Well, let's just take a step back. What is Worley? Yeah, look, so Worley's a global engineering project delivery firm. So we're about 52,000 people operating in 46 countries around the world now, providing, you know, project delivery, engineering, design services to the energy, chemicals and resources sectors globally so we work on projects all the way through from you know the kind of feasibility pre-feasibility you know exploration kind of stages right through to the detailed design construction thereof and even you know some end-of-life work decommissioning assets and, and cleaning up after the fact so we work with large heavy industry in the energy chemicals and resources sector which are, of course, the very industries, you know, that are very much in that difficult to abate and, you know, central to the energy transition that needs to happen. And how did you find yourself working in this industry? And, and also,
0: how did you find yourself working in a sustainability role in this industry? And when do
1: those intersect as well? Yeah, look, I've got a couple of teenage children now and it's making me realise how much of a freak I was as a teenager, but I saw a documentary as a teenager that really caught my imagination and it was about pollution from industrial sort of plant and equipment, you know, the sort of stereotypical image of belching smoke from from a stack and... You know, at school, I was a science-maths kind of student and, you know, I had all these fellow students who were really interested in engineering, studying engineering. And I didn't even know what engineering was, but because they were all interested in it, you know, I heard a lot about it and, and explored it a bit myself. And I decided that actually chemical engineering, which is, you know, the sort of engineering of processes was something that would be a pathway actually to clean up industry and to help improve those belching smokestacks that I'd seen as a teenager. So, I went into chemical engineering with that end game in mind. You know, I went in with an intent to work on improving environmental performance of industry, even at that quite early stage. And in fact, my first job out of university, you know, rather than being with one of the big oil or chemical companies was with an environmental regulator. <laughs> so I went and worked for the government at the Environment Protection Authority and worked with a lot of industry and sort of learnt on the job about what all their environmental issues were, you know, across air, water, noise, waste, you know, got involved in some legal prosecutions and, you know, investigating incidents and, and things of that nature. So kind of did a lot of my environmental learning on the job. And then sort of proceeded to work with you know some big sort of industrial companies when I left the EPA and then ultimately ended up working with what was then Wally Parsons, which was a big engineering project delivery firm and did the one thing that I hadn't done over the course of my career, which was to take on a profit and loss accountability in the business. So I was actually in charge of a team that was delivering consulting services to you know industrial customers and did the p thing for a few years. So that that was kind of how I came to be here. And then, you know, so I've worked at the, that sort of interface with our customers for, you know, probably about seven years. And then three years ago, I moved into the corporate area of Wally and, and started sort of managing our corporate sustainability program. And when you look at
0: building out this infrastructure, can you talk a little bit about traditionally when it comes to energy Chemicals, some of the other industries that you mentioned, what is the role of an EPC like Worley and how is that the same or different as you look at directionally where we need to go in terms of doing things in a more clean and sustainable way?
1: Yeah, so EPC stands for Engineer Procure Construct and, you know, that's sort of a package of work that often big project developers will tender out to firms such as Worley and others to do on their behalf. So it's the design it's the procurement of all the large, you know, equipment items that go into a big complex, you know, energy, chemicals or resources facility build, and then it's managing of the construction of the actual plant facility. So, it's really critical, actually, when you look at the pace and scale of what needs to happen to achieve mid-century net zero There's actually a lot of built infrastructure that's going to be required, you know, even if we use nature-based solutions and what have you, there's still a lot that we need to do to electrify our energy system, to, you know, transport electrons around countries and between countries, to transport hydrogen, to transport carbon dioxide and sequester it underground. You know, there's a lot of that kind of work that needs to be done. And it's it's quite an art form, you know, delivering large, complex projects. I probably shouldn't describe it as an art form. It's it's a definitely very scientific as well but it's a mix of art and science you know delivery of big complex infrastructure projects like that you know not just anybody can do it you know there's a whole ecosystem of procedures and practices that sit behind the control and management of all the you know many 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 moving parts you know in a massive project like that so those skills are going to be the very skills that are required to you know, engineer, procure, and construct the low carbon energy system that we need to build out over the coming sort of couple of decades.
0: So in your mind, it's a similar sport as you look at, for example, oil and gas versus solar or wind or geothermal or hydrogen or carbon capture or these other areas that it's, it's the similar types of skills just applied in a different area of Technology and maybe there's an emissions footprint that looks different in one versus another, but that the actual expertise involved is
1: very transferable.
0: Is is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, if we talk about the project delivery discipline, so that project management, management of contractors, you know, management of all the moving parts to deliver a large complex project, you know, that is a discipline in and of itself. And you can apply that equally to, you know, an offshore wind farm or an offshore oil rig right there's also a need for the technical you know understanding of of the new low carbon technologies and again what we're seeing is that there's a great ability to transfer the skills of the engineers and other people that we have that work for us from working for example on you know natural gas and complex chemical processing facilities onto, say a hydrogen manufacturing facility you know they're still dealing with pumps and pipelines and flanges and pressure differences and temperature differences and you know the laws of thermodynamics don't change because you're talking about a different substance and so there's great opportunity to transfer a lot of the skills that exist that people hold in traditional industries if you like into the low carbon future world i mean gosh
0: it's it's such a loaded word to even say the the climate community because what is the climate community? It's like everything is the climate community and nothing is the climate community, right? And then there's so many different perspectives and everyone butts heads and disagrees. So it's like, well, who are you actually talking about, right? I was about to say the climate community. So I'm trying to think, I'm just stream of consciousness here as I figure out the right wording. But I think what some people who are maybe critical of working with the big existing players in the traditional chemicals and Fossil fuels and stuff like that. It, their concern is not a balance sheet concern, the opposite. And it's, it's certainly not an expertise concern either. Like they certainly have the expertise to help. I think it's, it's more of an inertia concern, an entrenched interest concern, a lobbying and trade group concern, you know, concern that, that the ones with the most to lose in the short term might be the ones who might drag their feet the hardest to, Live off the fat of the land longer before the inevitable transition ultimately comes and put it off as long as possible. So I think there's some distrust from people that, that are, that put climate front and center of their careers in working with the big incumbents in the transition. And I'm just curious from your seat, how you think about that. I know it's a sensitive question given who your clients are, but to the extent you can talk about it, it'd be great to understand just how you think about it or how Worley thinks about it.
1: Yeah. Look, I think businesses need to adapt and evolve to survive, don't they? Because we don't live in a static world. The world's always changing and those successful businesses and brands that have been around for decades and, you know, centuries even, achieve that not by staying the same. And I think what's clearly in evidence in for example, you know, what have hitherto been known as the big oil and gas companies is that they are transitioning to become global integrated energy companies. You know, they can see that we are moving from a world that is about energy in molecules to energy in electrons, and they are transitioning their businesses and they're building the capability that they need to, you know, survive and thrive in that new world. I think those companies bring obviously a lot of capital, you know, and ability to actually do projects and do research and and develop things. They also do bring a lot of technical expertise and understanding of the global energy system and, and energy supply and demand, which is going to be required, you know, certainly the demand side, regardless of how you're supplying the energy. So, you know, I think those companies are on big transitions and You know, they're bringing a lot to the task. They've also got a lot of skin in the game, Jason, you know, that they've got big, you know, valuable assets out in the world that are now at risk from the physical impacts of climate change. And so everybody's working to, you know, I mean, the thing that kind of I was talking to my team about just recently, it feels like there's not a corner of the world that hasn't been touched in the last 18, 24 months with. Quite a significant impactful manifestation of climate change. You know, whether, you know, whether you're dealing with a flood in Pakistan or 45 degrees in central London or, you know, the worst bushfires on record in Australia or, you know, freak storms in, in the US, every pocket of the world is being impacted by climate change, and that impacts on people's assets as well. It's very clear that the social license of certain technologies and industries and businesses you know will be seriously challenged by the impacts of climate change that everybody's feeling now and and businesses need to be diversifying and looking to that low carbon future
0: so sounds like you have this expertise and this expertise is relevant in the incumbent industries and in the industries of the future and just ballpark, but what is the the breakdown in terms of the existing work that you do, let's say, in 2022 or in the last few years of maybe some of these traditional higher emitting industries and technologies versus the ones that are more sustainable? And this is not like a gotcha. It's more just to kind of get a snapshot of where we are in the transition and, and what Worley's book of business looks like. And I'm sure all of it's in your annual report, so it's not like it's a secret or anything, but since I have you.
1: Yeah, no, no problem. So, the split at the moment is around 35% sustainability revenue, 65 you know, more traditional conventional energy. And we have an ambition by 2026 to have that at 75% sustainability revenue. So, we're absolutely looking to grow that low carbon part of our business, and we've taken a lot of ground, frankly, in the last two to three years. I think when we first started looking at that number a few years ago, you know, it was something like fourteen percent, and we're now at thirty-five. So, and when you look at our pipeline of sales that we've got that we've got record of, that's growing up to you know fifty percent and over over the next twelve months. So. You know, there's rapid change happening in the industry. You know, if I can kind of contextualize the rate of growth that's going to be required in these low carbon technologies, the IEA has said that, you know, the annual investment, you know, over coming years out to 2030 and beyond is in the order of four to five trillion dollars per year in low carbon, you know, energy and supporting infrastructure like transmission lines and and what have you. And that's four to five times what the investment was in 2021. So, it's a, you know, a significant step increase that's required and to be sustained year after year after year after year for the coming, you know, two to three decades.
0: And you... You might not know this stat off the top of your head, so it's more just about an order of magnitude than a specific number. But if you look at that 35% number that's coming from sustainable revenues, how much of that is coming from the same customers that you were serving on the 65% side versus new customers that are coming from these emerging industries?
1: Yeah, you're right. I don't have that breakdown to hand. It's certainly a mix of both you know so some of our large global energy companies you know are doing some of the iconic new sustainable aviation fuel projects and and what have you and there and then there's others who are not you know traditional customers of ours who are doing you know these gigafactory you know enormous battery storage facility type projects in different parts of the world you know they're not entities that we've we've worked for you know until in recent years so it's definitely a mixture of both no question about it and if you can see you know the US government sending very strong signals at the moment you know around management of methane emissions actually and is really sort of the global leader on that particular charge getting methane emissions down quickly you know as a key short-term driver to sort of bring the temperature change down I mean there's methane emissions that are produced by agriculture, obviously, but you know, also the oil and gas industry is a significant contributor to methane emissions. And so it makes sense that we're working with, you know, our traditional oil and gas customers around methane abatement, right? And we are. So, you know, we're working across a range of fronts with traditional and new and different customers.
0: Uh-huh. And when you look at that goal to shift from 35 to 75 in just a few years, which is great, or I guess technically four years, but that's still not very many years. Why? What's driving the organization to set those aggressive targets?
1: Yeah. Look, we did a really, I think, a fantastic piece of work two to three years ago. We actually, I'll just give you a very high level sort of history lesson on on Worley. Three years ago, a heritage a company by the name of Wally Parsons, which was an Australian securities exchange listed company, acquired a division of a big American engineering firm called Jacobs Engineering. And we acquired the energy chemicals and resources division of, of Jacobs and sort of overnight doubled in size and became what is now known as Wally. As part of that acquisition and merger, you know, it really was bringing together two sort of equally weighted heritage you know, companies, and so there's really significant piece of work done around integrating the business, right, and agreeing and deriving and doing the thinking around what's our purpose, you know, what is this purpose that's going to bring us together, That that is our North Star, that you know, gets us out of bed in the morning and all sort of batting for the same team. And so there was a fantastic piece of work done over a period of months, There's like about 80 workshops held all around the world in all our different offices, people, all different experience levels, different backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera, contributed to these workshops to arrive at, you know, articulate what our purpose was going to be. And at the end of that process, the purpose that was articulated is delivering a more sustainable world. And, you know, everything we've been doing since that was articulated, I think, back in mid-2020 is really to line up to that. So in recent times, we've been doing some work around, well, what's our five-year ambition that'll tell us that we're on track to achieving our purpose? And, you know, this 75% of our portfolio being sustainability revenue is part of that thinking. So, you know, we're really lining up everything you know, we do, and the targets that we're setting for ourselves in support of achieving that purpose.
0: We're going to take a short break, so our partner Yin can talk about the MCJ membership option.
2: Hey, folks, Yin here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, non have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, Idea Jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show back to the show. And if you look at the
0: transition overall, and I don't know if this is tracked or how one would track this, but if you look at kind of the mix of different projects and the ones that would fall in the sustainability bucket and the ones that don't, and just as, as, as an aside, at some point, we should probably define you know, what what means sustainability because it's such a loaded word, but is the thought that you will essentially manage to the index of that Shift and just kind of keep up with the Joneses. Or are you actually looking to get out ahead of what the market demands? And I ask because you're a services firm, right? And so you're kind of beholden to your customers. And if your customers want dirty or want whatever it is, they, I, I shouldn't say dirty because then that people get all angry. So I'll say yeah, if they want, you know, coal or they want natural gas, which is a whole other discussion or, or, you know, versus something that is more squarely in the, in the future bucket, then are you at the mercy of that or are you actually trying to take steps to drive the transition as a firm?
1: Yeah, look, you raise a really interesting and salient point, Jason, which is, you know, as a service provider, you know, increasingly, I think we're going to be working in partnership with our customers, actually. I think that model of service providers is breaking down and and needs to evolve as we move through the transition. Gosh, we could spend a whole episode just on that. (laughs) Correct, we could. There are issues around getting too far in front, right, and being really clear about, you know, what it is that we're pursuing and why. And I think what we've been really seeking to do over the last couple of years is to start pushing the thinking in the kind of wheelhouse that we squarely fit in. And that's why I love talking about the delivery of the projects, you know, because, there are significant challenges to the pace and scale at which we deliver complex energy infrastructure right now. And to deliver at the pace and scale that the IEA is telling us we need to, to get to net zero 2050, some things need to change. And so, you know, as I sort of mentioned earlier, we, we've, we've put out a couple of pieces of thought leadership now with Princeton that really explore what are the shifts that need to occur and there's five sort of key shifts. And we're really looking to explore though, that thinking and develop it more In partnership with customers, you know, looking at different ways of doing things so that we can accelerate this delivery. So the five shifts, because now that I've referred to them, I better tell you what they are. It's around that with projects, you know, for development, that we need to take a broader view of the value that those projects deliver to communities. So not all being about, you know, the economic merits of a project, but taking a more holistic view to what are the environmental and social you know, what's the environmental and social value being brought by a given project? We're of the view that we need to keep technology options open. You know, at the moment, we can't have governments picking winners and shutting things down because we really need to pull every lever and different technologies, as you and your listeners know, you know, are going to work in different ways countries and under different circumstances and have different, you know, degrees of social license. We need to really standardize the design of the of the infrastructure that needs to build out. So at the moment, energy infrastructure is very, very bespoke in its design and that inherently kind of slows things down and makes things more complicated so we we see a need to design one build many and get a lot more standardization in you know hydrogen plant for example and you know you can already sort of see it in in wind farms we need to create more partnerships and i mean that's a really you know, that's a really common refrain in the discussion around the energy transition. You know, we need to be managing partnerships up and down our supply chains and, you know, bringing complementary skills and insights together to work problems together. No one can do this alone. And and we also need to be using digital technology to really accelerate the pace at which things move and, and the information that's actually available about projects and, and the build-out and carbon emission reductions to provide transparency to communities about that process as we move through the transition. So they're five of the big levers that we think need to be pulled and need to be done differently. And we are starting to work you know, with customers to explore some of those things and develop some thinking in-house as well about how, how we can apply this to the way that we deliver projects for our customers. When you look at everything that needs to get built what
0: are the biggest barriers that you see to getting the transition to happen faster
1: yeah look so there's there's a couple one thing you know and the reason that we've been working with princeton on this work is off the back of the amazing net zero america study that they published in late 2020 where they described five different scenarios to get the us economy to you know net zero by 2050 and then the thing that was radical and different that they did is they then downscale mapped that infrastructure and showed it on maps. So you could actually see where all, where all the wind farms were going to be, you know, where all the utility scale solar, where do the pipelines need to be, where the transmission lines need to be. And when you look at those maps, and a similar piece of work is well advanced in Australia and some interim findings and maps have been released in the Australian context as well. When you look at those maps, it kind of leaps off the page at you, the importance of bringing communities along on this journey and gaining and retaining the social licence that is necessary actually for, for this sort of development to proceed. So I think there's definitely a big issue around creating value for all stakeholders in projects and also around how the way we permit and approve these projects. Permitting and approvals is done differently in different parts of the world, done differently even in different states in the US, I understand can take a very long time. And particularly for, you know, if you're talking about a mine a mine project, right, for a, a transition metal or, you know, a nuclear facility, you know, you're really talking about 10 plus years and we really need to look at that and look at how, how that permitting approvals process can be expedited without losing all the hard-won gains of the environmental and social impact assessment, you know, that has achieved a lot of good in terms of you know, making sure that there isn't collateral damage associated with those sorts of developments. But we need to definitely look at how that can be made faster. I think supply chain is a really big issue when you look at the build-out that needs to happen. You look at the concentration of supply of many of the critical components and critical materials that are going to be required in the new low carbon technologies and there's a very great concentration of that at the moment in Asia and in China specifically, if you're talking about you know, solar panels and, and even wind turbine blades and increasingly battery technology. So there's a real need to diversify the supply base of some of those critical components that are going to go into the transition. I think governments are awake to that and we've, we've seen recently in Europe what happens when you have all your energy supply in one basket or, you know, there's one player that kind of controls too much of the supply chain. So I think we need to learn that lesson and ensure that that doesn't factor into, you know, the low-carbon technology. So I think they're they're sort of the big things. I think it's that social licence, the the permitting and ensuring the supply chains. You know, there's also a skills issue, but I think that will resolve over time. I think sort of over the next five years we've probably got – You know, we need more people with experience than than what we've got. But I think, you know, I look at my colleagues here at Worley and there's so many people who are wanting to, you know, build on the skills and experience that they've gotten in, you know, the conventional energy sector and apply that in the new low-carbon technologies and, and future that I'm quite confident that that transition will occur within experienced professionals already and doubtless, you know, universities are going to be pumping out new graduates with the right sort of technical skills straight out of uni as well.
0: This next question, it's a hypothetical one, but I mean, there's clean energy and you talked about the the goals of 75% of the work that you take on being sustainable by 2026. And, and of course, the mission of the company is to, I forget the exact wording, but around accelerating the you know to, to a cleaner world, right? So you do that and you rally the troops and new grads come because they want to deliver a more sustainable world and everyone's on board and the employees are demanding it and that's where they're going to get fulfillment and satisfaction and, and they can't imagine working anywhere else. But the reality is that clean is super important, no doubt about it. But there are other things, as we just alluded to, that are also important, things like security, things about independence, things about reliability, right? And so this is a hypothetical scenario, but let's say some of these other things come to the forefront, which don't make clean any less important, but just maybe make some of these other problems more near-term and acute, which leads your customers to come to you and want to build more dirty stuff. But yet you've declared this mission- right, of facilitating, and then you've hired all these people that want to go bring about clean. How do you balance that tension?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're seeing this play out in Europe right now, right? Well, globally, but sort of more acutely in Europe and Germany specifically, you know, this tension between energy security and the energy transition, and the message that is very clearly coming out of the European Commission and different heads of state over there is that these are not mutually exclusive. You know, these need to be solved together. There's an enormous opportunity, actually, in accelerating the energy transition to achieve energy security Now, that being said, clearly, there are bumps in the road, right? There are steps being taken that 12 months ago, nobody ever would have thought would have happened, you know, like Germany extending the life of coal-fired plant, etc. I think the view is, and certainly my view, is that that's a bump in the road. You know, this is a a decades-long transition. It's not going to be a linear reduction or a linear process. There are going to be bumps in the road and twists and turns, but everybody's eye remains on the prize of mid-century net zero and I think that that remains the case. I I think, you know, picking up on my point before about, you know, the physical impacts of climate change, you know, they're really ramping up now and I think there is absolutely no way that we can turn back from this decarbonisation journey that we're on. You know, will it move at different paces over the coming decades? Probably. Will there be bumps in the road? Probably. We're seeing one right now. But I think ultimately, it's the journey that the world is on and, and there actually isn't a lot of optionality around that. Now, a follow-up to
0: that is you talked about all this infrastructure that needs to be built and the you talk about the importance of social license and there needs to be a value proposition at the community level. And I guess my question is, I'm no expert on the... IRA bill here in the US. But it, it seems that one of the tension points is, hey, it's great that we're greenlighting all this clean stuff. But like permitting, you know, permitting seems like it's a really thorny topic, especially in the environmental justice community. And I'd love to just get your view on what's happening there, why there's this debate and tension and How you balance those two things, and and I have a follow up, but I'm going to save that one until we cover this important question first.
1: Mm, Yeah, so this is this is a very curly question, and you know I, I don't think it's a simple answer, so I can just sort of talk in probably some generalities. I think there's no question that the environmental and social impact assessment and permitting processes that we've had in place for many decades have created good in the world in terms of, you know, minimising and eliminating what otherwise might have been adverse impacts and really helped to mitigate the impact of development. However, the downside is that, you know, in some jurisdictions, you know, it's just a really complex, slow process you've often got more than one jurisdiction involved or one level of government either so the federal government might have a role a state government a provincial government might have a role and then you know if you're talking about a massive piece of linear infrastructure like a pipeline that's going to be used to, you know, carry CO2 for sequestration or hydrogen or a big piece of linear, you know, electricity transmission line, then you're bringing in even more jurisdictions and it it all gets more complex and, and complicated. So, I think we need to find a way to do that faster and smarter that doesn't undo or negate the sort of protections that we've come to expect in our development process. So, it's not a straightforward fix, but I do think, you know, can we use technology as a way? So, for example, data sets on the natural environment, biodiversity, is there some work that can be done to provide open source some of that information, right? So, it's just there. So, you don't have to have bespoke surveys done over a period of 12 months, you know, for particular parcel of land to do a particular development that, no, actually, you know, we kind of build as a global community or as a country or as a state or whatever it is, you know, a body of data that then supports and can be drawn on through a permitting and approval process. Now, there are probably other legislative changes that, you know, or reforms that are required. I'm not close enough to the U.S. system. What I do know about the U.S. system is that it's very different to the Australian system. So, I understand that in the U.S., it's actually the government that controls, you know, the environmental social impact assessment process, whereas here in Australia, It's the project proponent that does that and then the government does a review. So there's some kind of fundamental differences in the way things are done around the world. But what I know about both US and Australia is that there's an opportunity to reform and and streamline, I think, without losing the benefits that those processes provide. It
0: seems, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that policy plays a major role in how quickly this transition plays out, given where you sit, you, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like, yes, you have your goals, but you'll get paid if the transition goes slowly and you'll get paid if the transition goes quickly. And it's really your customers who are driving the work you do, at least to some degree. And given that, I'm just curious how much Worley as a company gets involved
1: in the policy discussions, if at all, and why or why not? Yeah, look we're we're pretty apolitical to be honest, so we don't tend to be out advocating policy positions. What we do like to do is where it's helpful is to provide our observations, you know, because we are out boots on the ground delivering projects, understanding what the realities of, you know, bringing a hydrogen project to market in, you know, whatever country of the world it is is, you know, that's actually a really useful perspective to policymakers. And so, you know, we do like to contribute that where we have an opportunity to, but we're not, we don't tend to be out there advocating policy positions. Uh Uh-huh. And I know we're getting a little
0: long in the tooth here, but there's just a couple of substantive topics I'm hoping to address quickly, if that's okay. Sure. One of them is funding. So I know that Orly, or I'd imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you aren't funding these projects directly, you're delivering them and getting paid by who's ever funding these projects. And so I guess my question is, as you look at the capital stack, and there's, you know, the first of a kind and the valley of death and project finance and government grants, and there's all these different sources of capital, but is capital a bottleneck? And if so, where in the stack stands out most to you, given your perch and the kind of work that that you take on?
1: Yeah, look, there are probably other people who can speak with far more insight than i can around capital what i am aware of though is that at the moment particularly with you know emerging technologies like hydrogen and you know maybe floating wind and and different things is that oftentimes those projects aren't yet commercial right and so i think what we've seen work in the you know to really accelerate the deployment of utility scale solar And wind over the last decade is that government, early government support to de-risk projects to then leverage the private sector investment is a model that's been very successful in solar and wind and we hope to see more of that in some of the new emerging low carbon technologies. So I think there's a real role for government there and you can see that in the Inflation Reduction Act, right? It's like a massive... A massive shot in the arm for project development and de-risking in the US, and you'll see things go ahead, you know, at pace now. So, yeah, I, I probably don't have much more to add on that. Finance is not my, not my bag, Jason,
0: nor me. To be honest, <laughs> I
1: I know the buzzwords. Yeah, right. That,
0: that's about it. But what about jobs? So, when it comes to having the right people and enough people and the right skills, how much of a
1: bottleneck? is that? Well, I mean, it absolutely is if, if governments aren't investing and, and universities aren't adapting their, you know, courses of study. But, you know, I see evidence of that happening all over the place. And so I think skills, you know, there, there's a real, you know, people talk about a just transition and often talk about these, you know, towns or counties that have kind of been built around, you know, different fossil fuel assets and, you know, and, and that they'll left be left with nothing. You know, those sorts of People who are skilled, you know, working in the in an industrial setting and who understand energy, I think there's a home for everybody in the new the new energy future. To be honest, now it might not be in exactly the same town that you're living in, in some instances. But I think governments, uh, you know, spending a lot of time and effort looking at how how we transition communities like that. And I just think people have a lot of transferable skills and fungible skills that can be deployed. To the you know the low carbon future technologies that we're going to need, and we've talked a lot in this discussion about Worley
0: this and Worley that. But what about within Worley, Sue and the sustainability team? What is the charter of the team, and what are you doing either internally or externally to bring about change?
1: Oh yeah, so our team I have a I'm a small team. There's you know about half a dozen of us in the in the corporate sustainability team. You know driving our corporate initiatives and we really see a couple of key facets to what we do And, and one is elevating our voice and building our thought leadership in this space and so the work with Princeton is part of that you know me talking to you is part of that Us, you know, offering our insights and observations around the world, you know, to different governments and stakeholders and customers is part of that. Speaking at conferences is part of that. We're also really actively seeking to build a sustainability culture across our business. So, just as over many years and decades, you know, ourselves, other contractors and and our customers have spent a lot of time and effort building a safety culture to reduce the, you know, safety incidents And fatalities, we're looking to build a sustainability culture. So really building the awareness and understanding of what it is, how we can bring it on our projects, arming people up with the the tools and the processes, you know, in our internal workflows to bring that thinking to everything they do. So really looking to build, build the culture as well.
0: Uh huh. And when we when you say sustainability and that seventy five percent target, for example, I could guess the obvious ones in terms of what doesn't fit and what does fit. But let's talk a little bit about the gray areas. Are there big internal debates about what is or isn't categorized as a as a sustainable project?
1: There so certainly. I mean, we're an organisation of 52,000 people, right? So there's 52,000 different opinions across the business. We've effectively developed, you know, the Worley sustainability taxonomy. It'll probably evolve over time. You know, it's loosely loosely aligned to the, the EU taxonomy insofar as, you know, we include integrated natural gas in that taxonomy as, you know, the lowest carbon fossil fuel and definitely as a bridge to the transition that needs to occur. So yeah, you know that there's different views, but we've certainly done a lot of work to look at that and to map what we think should be in and what's not, and we'll continue to evolve that over time. Our last question is just if you could wave your magic wand and change
0: one thing that's outside of the scope of your control that would most accelerate your ability to achieve those targets in 2026 and and beyond, what would you change and how would you change it?
1: I would like that magic fairy to put a global price on carbon. Why? Just to level the playing field and drive the behaviours, you know, to reduce the complexity of the transition. It would really let the, the market take the steps that it needs to take to do what it does best, which is make money. So I think a, a price being attached to carbon would motivate a whole lot of activity, which is activity that we need to see.
0: Sue, this has been such a far reaching discussion. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, or any parting words you'd like to leave listeners with?
1: No, just thanks for the opportunity. I think it's great what you're doing here with this podcast, Jason, you know, just really opening up, providing a safe space for people to. Learn and and I, I won't say ask the dumb question because you know <laughs> they're obviously not asking questions, but you know those those questions that you've got in your head or those things that you want to learn more about. I think this is a really great great platform for people to be able to come and, and hear straight from the horse's mouth on different things. Well, selfishly,
0: I just learned a ton.
1: Oh, great! In this discussion, yeah.
0: Well, Sue, thank you so much for coming on the show and wishing you and the whole Whirly team. Best of luck and also best of luck in the transition as well. And hopefully we make it an ongoing dialogue. If there's any way that we can assist you along the way, please let us know.
1: Great. Thanks, Jason. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter, capital to fund companies that are working to address climate change, and our member community to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJpod. Thanks, and see you next episode.